first day of school can bring up the memory of crisp autumnal air, jumpers, and a bright red apple to give to the teacher. But for many students around the world this year, it began with a video call. Nothing like you would imagine a first day of kindergarten. He had one Zoom call. The teacher introduced himself and he made sure everyone could get online. And that was it. Lockdowns and stay-at-home orders prompted school systems across the globe to teach remotely. In a matter of days, classrooms moved online. You hear a lot of the jokes are like, and then the teacher said to go, you know, log into Zing Zang and use the zip. There is an element of like, you have to go to a lot of places to check it out. It's like, do I turn this in on Google or do I turn this in on whatever video application they were using? I don't even remember the name of it. And parents had to adapt to school at home. But second grade is not hard to teach. Well, it is. It's impossible to teach, but I at least have the... <laughs> the knowledge. <laughs> Jim had the most reading. Jim class. Which hasn't always been easy. No child in kindergarten can read to themselves. So that meant 50 pages of reading to your child every day. While there have been difficulties, technology has created moments of innovation. One time a day, the teacher would do a scavenger hunt and then they'd have to go run around their house and find something, and then they'd get to show what they found. And it was the highlight of every kid's day. They start at nine. They have their morning meeting, right, Talia? And they do um, just different, like, social fun games. Yeah, we do, like, different games. In Talia's class, they play a digital version of the childhood game, Guess Who's Missing?, In the pandemic, it's made possible by tiled layouts and virtual breakout rooms. When everyone has been put into the waiting room, the teacher lets the chooser back in and then they have to find out who went missing. But the shift to online learning hasn't been easy for all, especially for university students. I had always romanticised the idea of going to university and meeting up with my classmates after for a coffee, stuff like that. And I feel like I am genuinely missing out on what the university experience actually is. It's like harder to feel passionate about any of the subject matter and to concentrate. So I guess I would say that like that sort of like interpersonal relationship aspect of an educational space is probably the hardest thing to not have. There's only four years to enjoy it and they let you pause it whenever you want and resume it whenever you want. And like, why would you settle for the shittier experience, I guess? The pandemic has proved that it is possible to study entirely online. But do people want to? You're listening to Tectonic. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times and your host for the series. This season, we're exploring how the pandemic is accelerating the transition to an online world and transforming so many aspects of our lives. The crisis has put the education sector into overdrive and accelerated the way we use technology to study. In this week's episode, we're looking at the growth of online education courses. It's an area where enrollment has strongly increased over the past 12 months. EdTech companies are offering flexible courses, which for many adults, including those who have lost jobs during the crisis, for an opportunity to upskill and change careers. Are we on the verge of a new way of learning? 
and in turn, creating a jobs market that is more responsive to technological change. About 1.4 billion students of all ages in more than 130 countries have spent parts of the past year adapting to learning online. The uptick in virtual learning has pushed online courses to become more flexible and sophisticated. Patrick McGee, the FT's San Francisco correspondent, has been looking at the growth of online education for this week's episode. Distance learning has been around for the past few decades. Then the pandemic came along and demand really went into overdrive. The recent shift to increased online learning has been taking place worldwide, and some analysts think the global edtech sector will be worth somewhere in the region of $350 to $400 billion by 2025. There's been a huge surge of interest over the past year in online courses that teach new professional skills, particularly courses designed for adult learners. Some of the main edtech companies specializing in these courses are Udemy, Udacity, Springboard, and Coursera. And they're attracting students from all walks of life. So, Tony Boswell, where are you calling from today? Kansas City, Missouri, um, at my home. Tony was a truck driver for 14 years. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's a rough life. You sleep in the back of a 10 by 8 box. You shower in a truck stop. You eat whatever you can grab while you run in the store and you hit the road and you're eating with your hands on the wheel. One day in his late 40s, Tony decided he didn't want to live that life anymore. My wife and I are living two entirely separate lives. She's got a life at home with her job. I have a life on the road. We never see each other. The last year I was in trucking, my wife was doing the taxes. She says, do you realize how many days you were gone this year? And I said, I don't know, you know, 250 years or so, you know, and she said, no, you're gone over 320 days this year. She said, I've, I've barely seen you a month and a half this year. And I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, how can I do this to my wife? I mean, we're empty nesters now. We're supposed to be together. It, it just came down to that, that, you know, what am I doing? How many days? 320 days? 320 days, yeah. Tony was scrolling through Facebook, trying to figure out what to do next, and he saw an ad for a scholarship to take a class in front-end development from an edtech company called Udacity. They actually asked you one question, and that was why you felt you deserved a scholarship. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, I found myself, by the end of writing it, I was, I had tears rolling down my cheeks, you know, just, I, I never realized how sad and how bad I hated driving a truck. So I sent it off, and I I never thought about it again. We'll come back to Tony in a bit. I want to take a look at Udacity first. It's one of a number of companies in the U.S. offering edtech courses like AI for healthcare, intro to self-driving cars, programming for data science. A typical course costs close to $400 a month, and most take four months to complete. Now, that's provided a student spends five to ten hours a week on it. So that's about $1,600 for a course. And when you graduate, you get something called a nano degree. The company's CEO, Gabe Del Porto, says the company's model matches what the labor market is really like these days. He believes skills become obsolete quickly, and the degree you graduate with might not be useful in five or ten years. You need to constantly reinvent yourself. 
Gabe himself has changed careers several times. Yeah, I always kind of joke I'm a little bit like a, a purple unicorn. I'm a nuclear engineer by training, and I have been a strategy consultant, a chief marketing officer, a chief financial officer, and now a CEO, none of which a nuclear engineering degree prepared me for. It's not clear to me from the narrative that you did retraining. Were you doing education on the side? I would say, unfortunately, most of what I learned was on-the-job training and people taking a, you know, fortunately, people taking a chance on me. Gabe argues that universities just cannot meet the demand of workers in particular industries. They aren't designed to move quickly and be nimble. Stanford has a great AI program, for example, but they're, they're graduating dozens of AI degrees per year, dozens, right? There's literally millions of open AI jobs around the world right now. There is no way that universities can, at their current pace, come near to satisfying demand in the market. Universities do a great job in educating the whole human. They are not set up for dealing with rapid societal change. Patrick, that rapid societal change Gabe is speaking about has been seen across a variety of sectors during the pandemic. We've seen demand for employees in sectors such as IT and e-commerce surge, whereas the likes of aviation, leisure and hospitality have suffered. Have these seismic changes caused a lot more people wanting to upskill using these kinds of courses? So yes, we're seeing lots of it. At this stage, it's difficult to put an exact number on the number of new students who've enrolled across the US in online courses directly because of the pandemic. But the chief execs of ed tech companies I spoke to said they'd seen unprecedented levels of enrollment. The CEO of Coursera, Jeff Magincalda, told me that between March 2020, so really the start of the pandemic in the US, and September, the company added 21 million learners, an increase of more than 300%. That's pretty staggering. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. What courses have you taken, Patrick? Well, I mean, look, I'm a bit of an exception. I have two children under the age of three. So I can't say that this has really been like the time to learn a foreign language or become an engineer. Um, So I sort of have to opt out of that. How have traditional universities fared during this crisis? I think it's been sort of a crisis, hasn't it? I mean, so many universities, they charge insane levels of tuition in the U.S. because there's just such demand. And they haven't in previous years really adopted or embraced the online model all that much. And now they've been forced to, but they just haven't been prepared for it. So I think you have just an attempt to do university classes uh, as if the pandemic isn't going on, which just means let's do some Zoom classes, but they don't really have the infrastructure set up. We spoke to a number of university lecturers about the experience of having to transition in March 2020, almost overnight, to online teaching. Oh, it's exhausting. It's still it's still exhausting. Christopher Ali is an assistant professor at the University of Virginia, where he teaches media. When the pandemic started, his university extended spring break to give professors time to transition all of their classes online. We were kind of in triage mode, and I had to just keep reminding myself that my job is to get my students through this semester. My concern was, of course, how do I transition? How do I do this? How do I move a course online? I have no training in online pedagogy. 
Christopher actually researches the digital divide in the U.S., why some Americans have access to high-speed internet and some don't. The pandemic brought his research home. I didn't know which of my students had broadband and which ones didn't have broadband, didn't have a, a connection good enough, for instance, to do a Zoom chat, uh, to do a live two-way video to be able to stream. So last summer, Christopher took classes on how to teach online to prepare for the fall semester of remote learning. And he learned some things. You can't do everything. So don't try to do everything. And that I, I need to be reminded of that a lot. Um, online education is an entirely different beast. Christopher wasn't alone in taking on that beast. By the middle of March 2020, only a couple of weeks into the first phase of lockdown, more than 1,100 colleges across the country had canceled in-person classes and moved everything online. While traditional universities have struggled to figure out, as Christopher put it, the beast of online learning during the pandemic, EdTech probably couldn't have designed or orchestrated a better scenario for them to thrive. The thing is, online learning isn't new. It's been growing for the past 20 years, really since the internet took off. The online education segment of higher ed globally has been continuing to take share and to grow, but it's been very slow and steady, very kind of measured and consistent over the years. That's Sean Gallagher. He's the executive director of the Center for the Future of Higher Education at Northeastern in Boston, where online education has been a growing focus of his research for several years. And the COVID-19 pandemic absolutely has been a key inflection point. Uh, so for example, fall 2020 higher ed enrollment in the US, if you look at primarily online institutions, which are just one segment of the overall market, their enrollment is up 7%. If you look at Google search trends or enrollment in various online course programs, it's really booming. So what do you get from these online programs? A degree? So Udacity offers something called a nano degree, right? Like a mini degree. And, you know, does this have the same credential as an MBA from Harvard? I mean, you know, clearly not. But if you've got a traditional degree and then you can sort of bulk up your work with these nano degrees... It is something to put on the resume or to put on your LinkedIn profile. And I think with more and more awareness of these degrees, um, you are seeing more and more recognition that, you know, this is not just a, a sort of meaningless certificate. It's not a book report, right? It's hyper pragmatic. But the common thread for all of these companies is they're designed to be online, flexible, and they're more accessible than traditional higher education. The average cost of one year of college for a student living on campus is around $50,000 at a private college and around $25,000 at a public college. Debt loads that Americans often carry well into or past their 30s. The other thing to know about these companies is they tend to focus on specific skills, coding or machine learning, user experience design, rather than a broader education, what we think of as a liberal arts education or, in my experience, a humanities education. So I'm unlikely to study a philosophy degree from one of these companies, you think? <laughs> this is one of the questions I had. Yeah, I was hoping I could read, you know, Plato to Derrida or something over the course of two years. Just not what they offer at all. First, let's go back to Tony Boswell, the trucker from Missouri. He just applied for a scholarship in front-end development with Udacity. I didn't think in a million years I was going to win that contest, you know. <laughs> um, but to my surprise, I got an email and that said I did, and I, I was just, I was totally blown away. Tony has been passionate about coding for his whole life. He started coding when he was a teenager on a Commodore 64 in the early 1980s. I adore my 64, my Commodore 64. 
Believe it or not, I was a and d kid. I played Dungeons and Dragons and rolled dice, and I got tired of rolling the dice for all the character sheets, so I built myself a character generator that rolled the dice for me. <laughs> all I had to do was hit a button. 64K memory at a price that will put a computer in every home, business, and school years before anyone But the path to actually working in the field of computer science felt closed off to him. I went into trucking because I didn't have a lot of other options. Um, I went to a little bit of college. Uh, I found out that I never had geometry. And uh, so when I got into calculus um, for electronics engineering, it was kind of hard learning calculus, geometry, and physics all at the same time. And I failed out of college because of that. You know, any kind of dream that I have was just shattered. After years of not fulfilling his dreams of completing further studies, the front-end development course from Udacity gave Tony a sense of purpose. He devoured the course and was selected to go further and study a nano degree from Udacity, also on a scholarship. I was so proud. Um, I went and told my wife, I had tears streaming down my cheeks. Um, I just, it was, it was, it was a grateful moment. You know, I mean, I don't know how else to explain that to you. Tony is now a front-end developer, and his story really underscores a lot of what online learning companies say makes them special. The classes were flexible, he didn't need to travel or relocate anywhere to take them, and they were skills-focused. They were meant to get him a job in a specific field. Patrick, that's great to hear about Tony. I'm curious, though, have these EdTech courses, like the ones Udacity offer, attracted more people like Tony who already have years of working experience? You know, I think it's difficult to say it's this gender, it's this age bracket that's, that's really engaged in online education. There's a certain sense in which nobody's going to you know, necessarily look down at you if you lost your job during the pandemic. It's such a global event. It's just clear that it wasn't just people that weren't doing their jobs properly that lost their jobs. However, if you know, you've been out of work for six months, just the psychological toll of that can be really difficult. And if you can actually say, look, I'm a go-getter. So I understood that I couldn't be in hospitality for six months because all the restaurants and hotels were virtually closed. But I spent that six months doing this, this, and this course, right? I think that's just a real way to signal to employers. When the going got tough, I retrained and learned three new skills. But there's one thing that a lot of online graduates worry about, and that's whether employers value their ed tech qualifications. Online learning programs just don't seem to carry the same currency as traditional educational institutions. But there are signs that online learning credentials are gaining currency. Here's Sean Gallagher again from Northeastern. He researches the intersection between higher education and the world of employment. So if you ask most hiring managers, even 10 years ago, how would they view the quality of a credential earned online? It was only about uh, 30 or 40 percent who said they would view it as equivalent to something that was done in person or on a traditional campus. Today, we believe that's well over 60%. Sean says a lot of credibility comes from reputation and familiarity. Employers tend to think about questions like, have we hired someone from this online learning program before? Did they actually have the skills or credentials that they said they would have? And part of the challenge for employers is there's no guidebook, there's no standard for evaluating the diverse world of online programs. It would be impossible, even if you had a database, to be able to interpret and understand what all of these offerings and educational credentials mean. That's part of the value of educational credentials is when they reach a certain scale, they're understood and they really signal something. So employers tend to build their whole concept of who is qualified based on something they're familiar with. 
a university degree. That may shift in the future. You have had companies like IBM and a number of others very publicly uh, make a, a shift in their strategy and say that they are entertaining people with alternative qualifications and really trying not to rely on degrees in the hiring process and getting much more granular and open about it. But that process, principally, it's about education and experience. And education is partly just a proxy for can you do the job? How qualified are you in that domain that you studied in? Christopher Ali, the University of Virginia professor, the one who found the shift to online classes exhausting, thinks the pandemic is pushing universities to innovate and be more flexible. We have to learn to be more dynamic um, as a field. We have to learn to embrace new technologies. I mean, maybe what we'll see is that more universities are going to do this hybrid model that so many are doing right now. Maybe we're going to stick with this. I'd love to see universities do a better job allowing students to take five, six, seven years for an undergrad. You know, there's no reason why one needs a four-year undergrad. So I'd love to see us be more flexible. Maybe this is forcing us to do that. Christopher doesn't think universities will become obsolete in the future. Instead, he thinks the pandemic may push universities to integrate some of the strengths of online learning, like flexibility. And this is something Sean Gallagher emphasized too. There's different narratives that are out there. Silicon Valley and people who are sort of skeptics of of higher education sort of want to promote a lot of the alternatives and tear down the existing colleges and universities. And on the other side, you have the uh, kind of ivory tower purists who think that online education is just a fad. And, you know, I think the reality is is very much in the middle, which, which makes it messy. The truth possibly sits somewhere in all of this messiness. The pandemic is boosting online learning companies, and that in turn has forced universities to innovate. And Sean thinks that will change the options that students have. The main thing, I think, is that students and professionals will have more consumer choice, whereas education historically has been very lockstep and not particularly innovative. Where we are right now is in the in-between with this mixing and matching of online and face-to-face learning, which I think will ultimately arrive at a model that is much more efficient in terms of both delivering it and consuming it. Patrick, a lot of people are talking about the future of education being a hybrid model, part in-person and part remote. Do you think online learning qualifications will ever challenge traditional universities? They should, but I don't think they will. (laughs) I think the value of the Ivy League degree, the value of the four-year BA is just so entrenched in our culture that I find it quite difficult to imagine that it's going away anytime soon in favor of something that's purely done online. One thing that I think will happen is, is traditional universities have understood the value of the distance learning prospects, right? I think one lasting trend that will get accelerated by this pandemic is the move towards renewed emphasis on lifelong learning. And so I think we've seen this huge turmoil in the jobs market as a result of the pandemic, as you've been reporting in this episode. And I think that that will be a fundamental change, that people will think very differently about working in one career for 10, 15 years and then thinking, maybe I ought to try something else and switching to something else. And now you have the capability to do that through these online courses. Next time on Tectonic, the pandemic has led to a surge in e-commerce and growing profits for big tech companies. What does that mean for consumers? If an entrepreneur wants to start a business that is in any way challenging one of those domains, they basically just can't get funded. They're called kill zones. 
You've been listening to Tectonic with me, John Thornhill. Our reporter this week was Patrick McGee. This episode was produced by Camille Peterson with additional producing and audio editing by Aluwakemi Aladasui. Sound design and mixing was by Breen Turner. Original music was composed by Metaphor Music. The editors and executive producers were Cheryl Brumley and Liam Nolan.